Hello and welcome. This is Alex and this is the Alex MacPhail podcast, a show all about learning, about celebrating success from the team front. We chat to astronauts and race pilots, entrepreneurs, billionaires, authors, singers, artists, adventurers and more. It's about understanding the team dynamics and making a team work well to achieve great things, learning from failures and setbacks and the endurance required to get through some of these tough events too. Please enjoy it, share it with a friend and remember to subscribe. This episode is proudly brought to you by North Star Asset Management. North Star Asset Management is a research-led boutique asset manager that provides specialist solutions for discerning investors. The investment process is built upon an obsession for research, which is applied to a limited number of meticulously managed portfolios. The outcome is excellent client service with results to match. For more information, head on over to northstar.co.za. That's northstar.co.za. It's very exciting for me to welcome you, Rafiwe. It is Women's Day and I'm managing to get an influencer woman in South Africa. So welcome this evening and thank you for your time and happy Women's Day. Thanks, Alex, and thanks for the invitation. It's such a pleasure to be spending uh, Women's Day evening uh, chatting to you. Okay, so let's see. You, you've been a bit of a, a jet setter back and forth the last while. We've, we've tried this a few times and for various reasons, my side and your side, we've not managed, but now we're here together. Do you want to tell me what's, uh, what's happening right now in the United States or in South Africa? Where, what's catching your attention? I know you've just unpacked and you've very generously given me your time. So what's going on in your life presently <laughs> that you are jet setting between the northern and the southern hemisphere? Yeah, and it's just, yeah, it's been an exciting time. Um, and it's, it's quite a, an interesting question because I've been getting uh, that a lot, people not understanding or just trying to find out what is it exactly that I'm doing. And it's, it's, it's very, very simple. So I'm on a sabbatical, mm-hmm. <laughs> sabbatical meaning that I'm actually not uh, formally employed or working for anybody, but working for myself. So I travel quite a lot. Um, I'm doing a lot of research. I'm doing my PhD preparation, which I'm starting next year. But most importantly, just uh, seeing what is happening wow. all over the world in terms of um, um, STEM education, in terms of the aviation and aerospace industry, interacting with a lot of people. We had a, we had a bit of two years where we were not interacting with anybody and we were very, very isolated. So I took this time this year just to um, do a bit of traveling, um, preparing for my, my academic year and volunteer as well. I'm passionate about giving back and just um, getting to those countries, seeing what is happening, giving my time, giving my expertise, um, you know, interacting with with a whole lot of people. But there are, you know, projects that I'll talk to you about as well later, specific projects that I'm doing in specific country. But just, just to summarize what I've been doing, just having a, a whole lot of fun. <laughs> Well, that's good. So if I understood the, the timeline correctly, so are you just about to start your PhD and have used this time to travel or have you already started and you're gathering research for the PhD? No, I'm, I'm going to start next year. So uh, what I'm doing now is there's a lot of topics that um, you know, I'm currently looking at. And one of the other things that while I'm traveling is actually just sort of doing research is to, you know, just trying to get to that um, particular one topic that I will, you know, I'll be researching about. So by traveling, it helps me quite a bit. I get to interact with different people that are in different um, sort of, uh, yeah, uh, industries that I want to look at as well. So that's what 
it's just part of what I'm doing as well in preparation for next year. So I will be starting my PhD next year. So I thought it, this is a good time to actually take some time out as well before, you know, delving into some really hectic academic, um, you know, academic life. Okay, well, that sounds fantastic. And I like your approach. Uh, that is how I understood it. So that's cool. I'm glad I got it right. Now, the, uh, have you got a, a couple, is it like five or 10 different things? Or is it still quite broad as to what are the potential topics? Is it aviation and, and sciences? And um, it's, 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 I, I think I've brought it down to quite a few, uh, quite a few topics. Um, but I think in the next few months, I will be able to narrow it down to actually maybe three, two or three. Because at the beginning, you actually never know. And, they'll, you know, I remember when I was doing my, my master's, what I had thought that I would, I would do mm. and what I had done at the end were just <laughs> remotely different. So okay. it's just to sort of get an idea. But what I don't want to do is do a topic that is going to gather dust. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. like you write a thesis and it's going to sit in somebody's library. I want to do something that's practical, something that can contribute not only to literature, but just to some of the, you know, some of, in a way, solving some of the pertinent issues in the world, whether it's inequality or poverty or, you know, whatever it is, but it has to, it has to be useful. Okay. That's, that's, yeah, it has to be useful and I need to be able to use it and apply it as well. All right. So then that's a, that's a great place to, uh, to segue nice sideways, sideways back a few years and uh, being useful is very good. I, I subscribe to that as well. Being useful, adding value to the world, trying to leave the world a bit of a better place okay. than it was this morning when you woke up, etc. Not being so much of a consumer, but being someone that is creating. And uh, so if, if we say that that is the sort of central theme of it, let's rewind back to maybe the sort of your early child, not early childhood, but childhood years and, and formative years when you were a teenager and looking out to the big blue world and seeing what's out there did this the this sense of being useful come from somewhere specific was there a role model a person was there an idea that you were chasing at the time that uh, that useful was was a central theme yeah interesting alex that that has actually been a central theme in my life you know when i when i did reflect on some of the um you know some of the things that happened earlier on that had sort of shaped who i am today that actually has been a central theme I had a privilege of growing up in two worlds. Um, I call them two worlds because they were two different, you know, vast world. In yeah. one world, I had a privilege of growing up with really amazing women, amazing, powerful women um, that um, shaped who I am today. My mother was a teacher and she could do absolutely anything. But in addition to that, she used to do a lot in the community. She used to teach music, <clears throat> and, and that's just community giving, not expecting anything in return. I yeah. had a neighbor um, who was a doctor, a female doctor, and she built a community center. And in that community center, a health community center for women, there were vegetable gardens where women could come and um, you know, really plant and make a living out of that. And I could tell you stories of all the women that I grew around. And it was from then that I thought it was normal to, when you grow up, to want to give back. But not only that, I thought it was normal to actually want to be educated. I thought it was normal for women to want to be absolutely anything because that's the, that was my frame of reference when, mm. I, when I grew up. So that has been always my theme, where because of the people that had, had influenced who I am, the people that I had looked up to, the people that I grew among, were the people that um, shaped the way I also do things. 
So for me, this is normal. You know, when I go all over the world and wherever I get and try to talk to young people, whatever, it's not something that is, you know, I have to do. For me, it's just normal. You go to a place, you have a story to tell. You tell that story. You You go to a place, you've got a skill that you have you share that skill so mm. that that sort of yeah it shaped uh, who i am um my, my background and my upbringing okay so when you say that the two worlds uh, the one world being the the world of sort of medicine and the one world of teaching or did i was a did i did i miss a trick <laughs> no so i haven't i haven't explained the the the, the second oh, okay world. all right so the first the first world mm-hmm. was basically the world why where i was you know i was told that I could uh, basically do anything. Uh, but okay. unfortunately, the time that I grew up, Alex, mm. it was during apartheid as well. Yeah. Right? So you've got this world that tells you that you you know can do anything. And then you get out of this world and it's a different world where there is sort of uh, those limitations. So it was quite interesting when those mm. worlds sort of converged, mm. you know, in, 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 a, in oh. a way. Because I think the world that I grew up in where, um, you know, I was surrounded by those women that had a tremendous impact helped me navigate the world that taught me or told me that I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't be certain things. So when did these collide for you? When did you see these two worlds coming into the same frame of reference and they, they didn't add up? What sort of age and stage, where were you at the time? So if I, if I look back, for example, I became a pilot, but early on, I didn't know that I could become a pilot, right? Because in my world, even though that world sure. was empowered, it had limitation as to what you could be. And one of the main reasons why I didn't know that it wasn't mm. a viable career choice is because there was nobody in the community as a pilot. Or I couldn't, you know, it wasn't something that you see sure. every day. We didn't have an airport close by, right? And, you know, the closest pilot that I've ever mm. seen at that point was Tom Cruise. And nothing against Tom Cruise, but just by looking at him, I didn't think I could become <laughs> a pilot. Doesn't relate. So when I say, you know, it doesn't relate at, at all. So when I say those worlds collided... You know, I was brought up in a world where I was taught that I could do anything, but that anything was still limited because that world that I grew up in, mm. in a way, had boundaries and, well, you know, it was limited. So there was sort of a, um, in a way, a, a collusion of, uh, you know, the mm. two worlds. And so, and, and when, yeah, yeah go ahead. And so when these, t- what, was the, what was the age where you first kind of realized this? Were you about 16 looking to what's the next career step or was it earlier or was it when you actually started applying for things or when did they, at what age were you at the time where you realized actually this is real? So when I, so when I passed to, or when I finished matric, aviation was never a viable mm-hmm. career choice. So if you didn't know anything, you know, really it's not a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't even know that it's a, it's a, it's a career choice. So. I opted, to, I, wanted be, I wanted to be a doctor because w- w- my frame of women in that community, you know, it was doctors and teachers. So mm. those are the women that I looked up to. And I was, I was quite good in medicine science. So I wanted to become a doctor. And, um, and because of the limited choices that I, you know, that I had. And I think it was only at when I finished university and I started um, getting exposed to the aviation industry, that's when I realized that, the, you know, it was the reason why I started in the industry so late. It was because of those two worlds as well. Not necessarily because um, somebody stopped me or anything like that. It was yes. just simply because uh, in my world, such those careers didn't exist. You know, there was, you know, sort of those limitations as to what I could be not because somebody else told me told me mm. that I couldn't be that it was just because the yeah. exposure wasn't there so I don't know if you, yeah, you understand what what I meant by the sure people. okay yeah. so I just want to before we get to yeah mm. b- before we get 
Sure, I get it. But before we go too far down, because this circles around nicely back to the, the, the Girl Fly program in Africa, which is exactly what you're doing is to create that voice for people yeah. like you 25 years ago who weren't exposed. So it's wonderful. But before we get there, so you applied and went to, to UCT, University of Cape Town, and to study medicine. Was that right? Yeah, so I, I started off doing a, a Bachelor of Science, uh, majoring in microbiology and biochemistry with the aim of going okay. on to uh, medical school. Okay. So, yeah, so it was quite an interesting story okay. <laughs> as All well, right. uh, um, you know, how I end up at UCT, but it, it's... <laughs> Let's yeah. hear it. I want to hear the story. <laughs> I want to hear the story. Yeah, so, the, so one of the other... Let's hear it. Yeah. I want to hear the story. <laughs> so parallel to that story of having grown up in that particular time in that, uh, you know, in that area as well was the unfortunate part was I did grow up in, in a family of seven to a single mom. So that talks a little bit about... You can imagine how, um, sure. in terms of finance and in terms of, you know, opportunities, uh, you know, it's it's just they become a little bit limited, you mm. know, as well because there's just a lot of us <laughs> that my mom had to take sure. care of. So I at that year yeah. I wasn't actually even supposed sure. to um, go to university because my mom was upfront and she was straight that we don't have the finance to actually send you to university, and she only had about. You know, when she spoke mm -hmm. to me, and I remember this conversation, I think she had about 500 rand or something like that. And obviously that was enough. So I was set on just taking a year off and just figuring out how am I going to raise funds, you know, to go to university? How am I going to do, you know? And this friend of mine, I mean, just <laughs> by chance, said to me, oh, you know, you know, UCT, you only have to pay like in March, something like that. They only require like 200 rand <laughs> for registration. And I'm like, are you kidding me? 200 rand and my okay. mom had like about 500 so i went back to her and i'm like give me the 200 rand and just book me whatever mode of transport i'm going to you know to uct and that as well okay. just explain my you know uh, attitude of there's always a way of you know in all the theme in my life there's always a way so yes. i was 16 years old never been uh well i've been out but never really travel that far on my own and at the age of 16 she gave me 200 bucks and i went to uct yeah. and as they say you know the rest is history come much they wanted their whole okay. registration i didn't have it where and, so, but they didn't where, chase me out <laughs> where were you living at the time do you uh, in race well, that's great where, where were you living where did you yeah. go to from where did you go from to uct no but from where where was your home uh limpopo in zanin which town? We oh, wow. Okay, so that, yeah. that's quite, that's <laughs> far. I mean, that's uh, I even know. just from Joburg, it's far, but Zanin is another three, four hours. Wow. Yeah, to Johannesburg. Yep. Okay, wow. Okay, so uh, you got yourself to UCT and, and then you yep. ended up getting through the first uh, bit. And So how did it work out with uh, paying the registration when it came? Did you get a bursary in that first semester kind of thing or how did you manage to no. wangle that part? No, not at all. Um you know, sometimes, I don't know, things work out in mysterious ways, Alex, <laughs> I'm telling you. Come March, I didn't pay the registration yeah. and they did not exclude me. They left me. And in the four years that okay. I, was, I was at UCT, I had a combination of scholarships. I had a combination of bursaries and the outstanding amount, they always carried it over. I was never excluded at UCT because of finance. I hear people okay. that, you know, they couldn't register because, um, you know, they didn't have money. Mine just carried over. 
But the, I did a lot as well at UCT. You know, I participated okay. in sports, uh, house committee. So I wasn't, I didn't like really sort of sit back, but I, I was really, really active as well. And I played soccer, mm. um, first team for UCT, and I made it to the student um, half wow. colors, um, provincial side as well. And at some point, I captained the UCT sure. soccer team. So I was really, really, um, uh, you know, active. So I think that as well played a role. You were living your full life there as a student, eh? <laughs> no, no, I was. I was. It, it was. And man, I think UCT really changed. In a way, it changed my frame of mind. It was a really different world. But it was really, um, you know, exciting as well you know, being away from home for the first time, but I've always been somebody that is very independent. So that wasn't really um, a problem, but it also mm. opened up to open me up to a whole lot of opportunities. I didn't really play a lot of sports in high school and I started playing a lot of sports at UCT. I didn't really participate in a lot of things in school because I changed okay. a lot of schools as well. And up until grade, grade um, I think grade 11, I pretty much had um, Bantu education, education. And the last two years uh, of my high school. Okay, sure. Th yeah, so, so there wasn't, in those schools, there wasn't really much happening because those schools normally don't have facilities for sports or any other. So it was quite interesting when I went to UCT and mm. there's just a whole lot of things that I could actually do. But something else as well happened at UCT. And I, I always want to mention this because of the kind of young people that I worked with. One of the disadvantages of obviously going to a Bantu education school mm -hmm. is you do everything English second language, meaning that, you know, you do your maths in second language. Like yeah. English is second language and your first language is North and Sutri. So everything sure. else you do. And so yeah. when you go to university now, everything is first language. And I remember... I had to write some essay or something like that. And I couldn't even put like a paragraph together because my English was second language, not necessarily first language. And I remember as well in, in yeah. um, one of the races that, you know, that I used to be and you have to run for house committee, right? And so when you run for house committee, these guys yeah. will come and they talk like Obama. You know, they have all these speeches on how they're going to change the world. Which means you have to be articulate, <laughs> you have to really, you know, yeah. you have to really, you know, speak well because you need people, mm. you know, to yeah. vote for you. And in first year, I was sitting there and I had this edge because I really, I, I've sure. always been somebody that wanted to be out there, wanted to make a difference. But because of English, I couldn't, I didn't want to stand in front of people because I thought, you know what, they're going to laugh at me. But I had this edge of really wanting to make a difference. And the only way that I could yeah. do it, if, if I can stand in front of everyone and really say something. And first year, I didn't because I was just petrified to do that. But in second year, I decided, no, nah, I'm going to do this. I'm <laughs> going to stand in front and I'm going to do this. So if I practice and practice for months, like writing that speech so I can sound like, you know, long speech. But uh, the day came yeah. when I had to campaign and yeah, yeah, I forgot half of the stuff and I said a few things and I got voted in into housecom and i realized a few things that somebody you know at that point as well sometimes it's not about it's the authenticity of you know what you're saying and this for me is quite important especially sure. with the kids that i work with because some of them are afraid to do certain things because the way they sound or the way they speak or because of their background so it became a really for me it became really a, a good yes. tool 
that are used today to actually inspire and motivate, uh, you know, the young people. Because from then onwards, nobody could do anything. I could stand uh, and talk a whole lot of whatever that I wanted to talk, anywhere I wanted to do because of that moment that I stood up <laughs> and said whatever that I wanted to say and actually got, you know, one of the most votes, uh, at, um, you know, um, at that point for House Committee. Yeah. But during that as well, I remember telling them that, um, you know, if they vote me in, you know, we're going to win for the first time, like the best race at UCT. And you know what? We won. Okay. So two things as well. Lofty Integrity, goal. That's whatever good. You say, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Whatever you say, make sure that you deliver. That's it. Because from, no, uh, from then onwards, I was known as somebody that delivers consistency and delivery that that mm. was one of the lessons that i had that i and it became yes. easy for me where sometimes i don't even have to say anything or i just have to say two words listen i will deliver and people actually believe you okay well what i'm hearing from you for this whole 15 minutes we've been chatting now is the, the word <laughs> that stands out for me is courage you had the courage to yeah to go for things, to courage to, to go 2,000 kilometers away from home across the country, time zones, climate, cultures, and, uh, you know, Bantu education. I mean, UCT is one of the top universities in the world, never mind in the country. I mean, that, that's big courage. And then when you're there, you continue that trajectory of courage to, to try new things, try sport, and, and, you, and you excel in that, and try something that you're not comfortable with, public speaking and getting public acceptance to do something, courage. I think that that's great. And if your central message is authenticity backed with courage, well, I think, you know, you're really a long way down the track to, to making a success of it. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> yeah, courage. Yeah, I think you, you've summed, that, summed it up, um, I think, much better than I did. <laughs> like a few minutes. <laughs> it took me 15. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's lovely. Okay, so is it at, while you're at UCT uh, doing one of the easy courses of microbiology and chemistry, which is really, I mean, most people can just walk that, and um, that's very tongue in cheek. It's, a, I mean, that's quite a, a ballsy course to, to go after in the first place. Is it is it while you're at UCT that you're exposed to helicopters and and uh, or, or not helicopters, but aviation and and that being a possibility? Tell me about that story. So it was while at UCT, um, I took my first flight while I was a student, which was quite interesting as well. And I remember that flight, and I'm going to reference because it didn't, at that point, it didn't really make sense, but it made sense later on. Um, so one of the other things as well, I was very curious. I always asked questions okay. everywhere I go, like annoyingly curious. So one of the flights that I did, that I was a passenger, one mm. of the pilots was actually female, um, and I think it was the old 727, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken, for Kome okay. at that time. And so, you know, they like making that from the flight deck. This All is right. the first officer speaking. And so I needed to understand who's this person that is speaking. So the cabin crew was like, oh, no, that person is a pilot or the ones that fly the aircraft. But I packed it there. Little did I know that that particular story would sort of overlap with other stories that happened later okay. on. So I packed it there. And I'm like, okay, this is quite interesting, you know. So that was like sort of my yeah. first encounter in aviation, my first encounter in women that were flying um, in sort of aviation. So I went back, you know, to university, finished my degree, still with the plan of going to medical school. But something else happened as well. So I finished my degree at UCT. Mm -hmm. 
but there was a catch as well. So and I got a, and I was supposed to actually start uh, medical school, not at UCT. At other, I applied for at other universities as well. But what happened is when you've got outstanding fees, they keep your results and your certificate until you finish paying. Uh, So yes, I had, I was cruising the whole of four years. (laughs) I had so much fun. Nobody was bothering me, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, with the money that I owed, but it it caught up with me right at the end. And because of that, so... You mm. can't go to another university yeah. because the, that other university, they want your certificate, they want your results. So I had to find a job. Sure. Yeah. Now, I couldn't use my degree to find a job because okay. I didn't have a certificate. Or my official, I had transcript, but not an official ah. transcript. So I can't find a job as a microbiologist or a scientist or in the science field. Or even say I've got a degree because I don't have, <laughs> I don't have any means of showing that I had a degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and guess where I found a job? <laughs> it is tricky. I found a job in an, in, a, in an airline as a cabin crew. Okay. Because at that Back, point... Uh, cabin crew. Okay, so then you get cabin, exposure straight yeah. to aviation. Yeah. Aviation, exactly. So, and at that point, mm. um, the requirement was that you had to have you know, metric was the minimum requirement and some sort of work experience. So while I was at university, I did work. I was a receptionist at some point and I had a lot of, um, you know, um, outreach work that I did. So that actually, um, it it worked for me. But also the first and second year results Mm -hmm. I had and I, you know, I told them I had a degree and my story and they were quite actually fascinated, um, you know, about my story. And I think I got a job within five days of my first interview and another interesting thing i couldn't swim when i applied at uh, you know Uh that's a requirement uh, for cabin crew for for air crew it's a requirement for cabin crew so when i left i remember the first interview when i left i thought ah man there's no way they're going to take me but you know what they said to me they're like no no go and take lessons at boxback when, you know, because this is how long the training is. Mm-hmm. And by the time we come to ditching, so they actually arranged for, um, for the lessons at Boxback. Ah. So, you know, so I always say somewhere, yeah. somehow people, there's a lot of people that play a role in your trajectory and where you ended up. So they didn't just discount mm. me and not give me a job. They liked me so much that they actually arranged for me to actually learn how to swim. So I can meet the requirements of teaching. Sure. So, and Alex, that's, that's where my love affair okay. with, uh, you know, with flying started, you know, sort of flying started. So now, interestingly, that woman mm. that I was on my flight was actually Captain Maggie Fell Yoon, who was then working for Kome. Uh, so, you know, coming like sort of full circle, yeah. you come back and, you know, it's, yeah, it's her. And you're like, wow, <laughs> you were on my flight when I was in, you know, when, when I was at university <laughs> and just looking at her now, you know, and at, at that point she was flying the 727. She was captain, I think, on the 727s. It was, it was quite fascinating. And that's how I started learning about the aviation industry, started doing a lot of research. But I, I had a lot of um, encouragement and support. You know, the guys used to put like pamphlets about aviation. And one of the um, 
one of the captains there, I remember, saying to me, he's like, Refilwe, I will, I would, you know, I would help you out. You know, I would, I've got a friend of mine who's got an aircraft and um, I know it's expensive, but you can just pay for fuel. You know, you don't have to pay me. You don't have to pay for my, you know, my aircraft. And that's how I took oh, my wow. first lesson from one of the, um, you know, the pilots at, okay. at Kome. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was quite interesting <laughs> how I started flying. So it's not the traditional story where someone okay, grew up again. You know, building, yeah. But I mean, again, there's, there's courage there as well, Rafiwa, that uh, d- despite the fact that you've gone through a tough course and you completed it, you don't have that and you need to make a plan to be able to get your backing so that you can get the better job and, and then, you know, applying for a job that requires you to swim, you don't know how to swim. Courage, you know, people, there's, being unable to swim is quite uh, quite something. Again, some people are, are scared of it. Some people just don't know about it. But if you don't know how to swim and your job requires you to swim, that's a, another courageous move. Well, I'll just learn how to swim then and jump in. But at what point did you realize that this, uh, after that lesson or that time being a, a aerostess, that you thought that aviation career is, is good for you? How, how, what was the next steps to get actually get into aviation when you ultimately joined the police? Yeah, so it was, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was during that time when I started flying because I remember my, my first flight as well. I was like, wow, this is quite exciting. But just going back to something that you mentioned, uh, Alex, when I started working at Commerce Cabin Crew, for me, it was one of the lowest time in my life because you're right. I, I did everything right. I've got my degree and I um, you, and I'm, my frame of mind was I'm sitting here. I've got a science degree. I did well, but I'm an air hostess because I actually didn't understand, I think, number one, what the job required and what the aviation industry. Because I thought then initially that the only thing mm. that you do, you serve tea and coffee. That's all you do. So you can imagine from that frame of mind of having a science mm. degree and now yeah. I'm serving tea and coffee only to find out that there's actually more to be in cabin crew, sure. you know, safety-wise. And when I was going through the course, I'm like, wow, this is quite fascinating, yeah. interesting. But when I started traveling and flying, I'm like, oh, my word, this is exactly what I want to do. This is the in- industry that I want to be in. You know, you get yeah. to do different things. You work with different crew. But I had amazing people that I worked with as well. You know, you in those times, like 20 years ago, you know, you have night stops in Cape Town. You're sitting with everyone. For me, it was home. It was just, you know, and Kome was small when uh, um, at that mm. point. It was very, very small. So it was, in a way, it was like people welcoming you, you know, in a way, welcoming you home. And you've got all these pilots. They're like, I feel you should be flying. And that was 20 years ago. How unusual is that? was that as well? And even arranging the flying. Yeah. So at, at that point, I knew sure. that this is the industry that I want to be part of. This is the family that I want to be part of. These are the people that, wanna, that I want to, you know, that I want to be, you know, that I want to be part of. And I knew that I wasn't going to go to <laughs> medical mm. school. But obviously, you can't tell your parents that. You just have to keep quiet and just get on with it. So when I started the lessons, I really didn't <laughs> tell my parents or anybody at home. I just started. But then there was another challenge as well. Flying is expensive, right? So I had an outstanding yeah. money that I needed to pay sure. the university. And then there is the flying, the fuel. Even though I, I was only paying for fuel, it was still expensive to, to do that. The third challenge, yeah. which was quite interesting, um, that taught me another lesson, you know, to utilize your time very effectively was I used initially I used to fly at Lanseria. Now I, I stayed with my sister at Centurion and I didn't have a car. So to take yep. taxis at that time to Lanseria, 
you take a taxi. So I used to walk like a couple of kilometers to oh. like where I can take a taxi. Take a taxi to Old Joburg Road. Old Joburg Road to Pretoria. Pretoria to Randbeck. Randbeck to Lanseria. When you get to Lanseria, you stop and you have to walk. Because at that sure. point, the taxis didn't go in. So you have to walk. So it used to take me like <laughs> wow. three hours, three and a half hours <laughs> to get to my, lic- my lessons. By the time I get yeah. there, I am tired. You're going to do an hour's flying. And then you have wow. to sit for a briefing. And then you have to fly. Yeah. So I, so I thought, okay, yeah. this, I need to use these four hours in the Texas. Mm. So I used to study for my, um, you know, for my prepare for the lessons and studying that four hours. So I'll be sitting in a taxi with my, you know, I remember Travathon book, that yellow one, and I'll be studying there for my PPO, you know, exams or whatever. Yeah. So, and I, and, you know, and I took that all the way when I, I eventually joined SAA as cabin crew on long haul flight. After those flight, take out the drive, you know, those dry store bin, sit in there, open my books and study. So it's in a way, yes, it, in negatively, yeah. yes, it took four hours. But for me, it was four hours of work and literally, you know, just just studying. Even yeah. now when I do like I'm traveling for like 18 hours, man, those 18 hours, I finish assignments because that's, <laughs> that's what I learned in those texts to do that. Yeah. So that was the second thing. Now, when you do that, sure. when no. well, you that's know, great. your progress, I, obviously, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, carry on. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So one of, no, so carry on one of me, yeah. the things, yeah. One of the things was obviously when I get there, I'm a bit tired. So it does. It did take me back. So my progress wasn't as as it should be. And when later on I qualified as an instructor, I sort of understood why my progress wasn't as it's supposed to be you know you know a little bit slow you go back and by that time i'm flying about one hour mm. or two hour a month not as you know and my instructor's like no you actually need to fly mm. you know regularly maybe it's a good idea to just save money and you know sort of fly regularly so that was one point so now if you do calculations and i'm flying one hour and two hour a month and i need 200 hours <laughs> how long will it take me to get my comb it took me, yeah. you know a couple of years right yeah so that again was quite ask. interesting and yeah. I'm, it sure. is and i was like nah man come on not again you know <laughs> and so i decided okay i'm gonna move from Kwame to saa and at, SAA, you can at do this point international uh, flight yeah sorry but but at this point had you had you paid off your your student loan by then or was this still a looming oh, thing no. in the back of your mind as well no, so I was using half of my salary, pay my student loan every month, and then half of that salary pay. So that's why I could only afford two hours of flying. So that's how I and I didn't. So I, I, wow. I decided I'm not. Again, going to that's buy another a car. courageous thing that you've got to. Yeah, I mean, a bit. I just sorry. Just the point being that people get themselves into situations that become tricky and difficult. Um, and, you know, paying off a student loan is difficult, but then you take on the next challenge in conjunction while you still have this challenge. To, let's take on the next challenge. You're not, you're not scared to try things. You know, it's, it's, it's to better yourself, yeah. and uh, I salute you. Well done. That's, that is impressive. Okay, so you moved to SAA. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I moved to SAA. But just coming back to your point, at that point, I decided I'm not going to medical school, so paying it off wasn't a priority, but paying to get the interest down was a priority. So that's how I looked uh, at it. 
and then you know like just pay until you're in a, at a point mm, where you can okay. pay it off but just pay to make sure that you don't get into like a debt you know like um your interest it stays quite low but most importantly you keep a good mm. credit record as well because you don't want to be if you don't pay you know you, you yeah so and then I, I joined SAA as well as um as cabin crew and at that point obviously when you fly international they used to have you know nice long haul flights so when you fly international man those dollars go a long way <laughs> in getting those hours so for me it was more money <laughs> yeah, in do. terms of the yeah. meal, you know the meal allowance uh that i could use for my you know the hours and as well the the off days so after a long flight you've got like you know five off days so when when i was flying for kome you 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 flew regularly and had like one or two off days but when you flew long haul you could fly that long haul and come back and you've got five days and you've got couple of dollars so on those five days you can fly 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 so that was you know sort of the logic as well but obviously you're tired you need mm. like one or two days to recover so and and and, 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 and it wasn't yeah, really yeah. too bad but at some point i was i thought no um this is you know this is not going to work you know i need to do something and that's when i wrote letters but the idea of writing letters i got it from a couple of years ago as well from one of the pilots at you know come joking is like oh no write to people you know and then years later i took that i wrote letters and i think i must have written about 200 letters and they end up in a lot of companies and few companies responded and this i think two yeah it was two or three i can't remember but out of those 200 about two or three responded and this is the interesting part that i never actually talk about and you're probably one of the first few <laughs> to actually know this part of what mm-hmm. happened one of the companies contacted me and they're like we've got your letter we like it you've got signs you're probably going to succeed you'll probably do well in the selection prog- uh, program but we want to train you as a helicopter pilot uh, i was like no i want to be an airline pilot i don't want to be a helicopter pilot but the reason why is because i actually didn't know <laughs> what you know helicopters what they do who flies helicopters who da, you know who does what and you know so my frame of was i want to be an airline pilot i want to fly in the airlines and you know that's it and i actually said no to that opportunity oh wow it was the first time that i had actually said no to the opportunity now the second organization that got my letter was the south african police services which was quite interesting now it end up somewhere uh HR department or something like that. I remember I was in Atlanta on SAA flight. And then ops from Atlanta called me that there's there's a guy looking for you here. But they left the numbers. Once you land in South Africa, give them a call. And I was like, okay, awesome, cool. Okay. So I land in South Africa and I give the guy a call. It was the HR person from SAPS and they're like, we got your letter. We're busy with selections now. and we want to invite you to go through the you know the the selection so i'm like oh okay when are not the selection they're like tomorrow <laughs> i was like what okay cool then i went through the so oh, wow. we had to write the what psychomat- psychometric test now another interesting part they're like oh no no you know you come there there's this guy that will drive you to the psychometric test and whatever so cool 
So I get into the car with this guy. He introduced them. My name is Yana van der Kolf. He doesn't tell me who he is. Whatever, I'm going to be driving you to the psychometric test. I'm like, okay, awesome. So we, I traveled with him only to find out later yeah. that he was the commander of the A-Wing, the director of the A-Wing. I was like, wow. But, you know, lucky for me, I'm always sure. on my best behavior. <laughs> and, and he was just asking me questions. And that's why I always, the young people that I speak to, I always tell them that you never know who's in the room. You never know who you're talking to. I drove with mm. him, you know, without actually knowing that this is the person that is going to, at some point during the selection, when we go through those selections, that has to make a decision about, you know, my career and all those things. You know, so, and, but, um, you know, authenticity, being true to yourself, integrity, you know exactly who you are. I just, you know, sure. I was just chatting and he's asking me questions. And yeah, mm. so it went on. So, but just to cut the story short, you know, the selection went for a week, um, for that whole week. And I think within a week and a half or of lending from Atlanta, I got into a program by the South African Police Services. Now, that's, that was the, the other interesting part was, again, it was a helicopter program. But then they said this, they also said to us, oh yeah, we've got fixed wings. So in my head, I'm thinking, ah, it's fine. I'll go through the helicopter uh, training. And then um, after the helicopter mm -hmm. training, hit fixed wing and I'm out of here. That was my initial, my initial thought. So we, <laughs> go yeah, back to so airlines. Yeah. When, <laughs> yeah. And go back to airlines. Right. So, so we went back to 43. I completed my uh, my uh, private pilot license, and you know the nice part you get to forty three air school, you fly every day, you the exams you take every day. I'm like, damn, I'm gonna take this opportunity. Yeah. Within few weeks, I'm finished my private pilot license, and sure. uh, did my com license. I think at that time we, we used to write all eight. I must have done them in a week or a week and a half. The exams at CAA, because for me this was an opportunity that. It was just put on the, nice. uh, you know, on the table and I wasn't going to, mm. you know, throw it out. And I worked, but I, you know, I did have fun as well. You know, it's 43. Mm. <laughs> what can I say? You know, a bit of fun there. And, um, and then from there, we transitioned into... Sure. Um, Incidentally, I'm just sitting down the road from 43A school now. It's just... You, just a little... You're kidding me. Just, oh, I can look out the window and it's not too far away. <laughs> I have, yeah, I have memories, but, you world. know, the stuff that some of the mischief that we got up to, they're not for, <laughs> they're not for, <laughs> they're not for the chit chat. They are for coffee. But it's, 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 I, I really <laughs> liked it because everything was about flying. Um, you know, everything was about, you know, it's just to get in. Everyone there is there to do the same things. You know, I had, you know, instructors. Some of them were awesome instructors. Some of them were like, oh, my word, this person. But it is what it is, right? <laughs> you meet different people. And, mm. but, you know, just to sum my time, so, I, I, had, I had a whole lot of fun. What year were you in uh, at, at, at 40? What year at, were you at 43 at, at, at school? Uh, 2004.
Okay, all right. My sister went there as well, but she was, uh, I think she was 07 or 08. Okay, so you'd been gone by then, all right. So we didn't overlap. Yeah, no, so we yeah, missed each other at South African then, Airways, yeah. and my sister then missed you there. there. So we've had yes. a, a couple of close calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so you finish up your yeah. Comet 43 Air School, and then you go straight onto helicopters from there, or what's the training like after that? So, no, I finished my PPL fixed wing and com subjects at uh, com subjects only at 43, and from there we transitioned into helicopters. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. helicopter flying was quite interesting. Um, it was hard, let me put it that way. It was really hard. Uh, uh, I think it's one of the hardest things that I've, one of the hardest things that I ever had to do. I struggled with hovering that helicopter. You know, I remember it, La Messi, I think um, King Shaka was, it, the King Shaka wasn't there, so it was La Messi. That helicopter will move from one corner to the other, and my instructor will be sitting there. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, and it's just doing, I'm like, oh, it's not, you know, it's not hovering, and it will be moving from one corner to the other. To a point where <laughs> I actually wanted to quit. That's how hard sure. uh, for me hovering is. And there was this instructor, and I'll never ever forget him, right? Mm. I'll never forget him, and unfortunately passed away. But that was one of the most awesome people that I've ever. Uh. met in my entire life he was just absolutely awesome and he, he was actually in the air force maybe you might have come across him uh solo van royan oh, i don't know that name you don't know that yeah so yeah so hmm. he was yeah so and so he so i was battling and at that point i wanted to quit and i was i'm gonna quit and I told my boss as well, and I said, you know, thank you for the chance to fly helicopters. Maybe you guys could do with a fixed wing pilot, you know. I'll finish, I'll finish my comp fixed wing, and I'll just come and fly fixed wings. And so this guy, um, uh, this, my instructor, Um Solo, you know, just called me and just started asking me questions. It's like, Rafilo, do you have a driver's license? And like, I'm like, no, I don't. Do you do that? No, I don't. And it's like... You know, I know you're comparing, you're very competitive and you're comparing you with, you know, you're comparing yourself with a whole lot of other guys that are here. This is like probably your second frame of coordination kind of, you know, reference. Some of these people have been, you know, doing a lot of coordination exercise from this mm -hmm. small, you know. So that was the first thing. The second thing he noticed as well that when I'm flying, so yeah. as a woman, we always get told to, we sit a certain way, right? You know, close your legs. So when I'm flying, I, these guys are always saying, no, open your legs. And I didn't understand why, why are they saying open your legs? But your cyclic sits right in between your legs, right? So if you close your legs, you're flying with your legs like this. So you're, you're, it's almost like, I don't know how to demonstrate it, but you're, you're not flying. So with helicopters, you fly with your wrist. It's almost like it's small movement. But because my cyclic is tucked in between my legs, I'm moving, I'm making big yes. movement because of the way I naturally sit. So what he did, which is something quite interesting, he started understanding the context that I was coming from and understanding what are some of the barriers that are really ah. preventing me from doing or from actually flying this helicopter. And by identifying, you know, uh, you know, certain things that were actually doing that, that's what actually helped me to actually fly that helicopter. Because when he started 
talking. So I started understanding certain things. And obviously I wasn't relaxed because, you know, I was getting frustrated because I'm not going solo and everyone is going solo and all these things. And sure. he said to me, I remember he said to yeah. me as well, you know, come with your shorts, come with your t-shirts, relax and do all these things. And let's just go and have fun. Let's play. And when he started doing that, I think within two, three days of that, I went solo. Mm. And uh, between me going solo ah, and quitting. It's amazing, eh? That is amazing. Exactly. So if he didn't take time to probably look beyond, you know, the training itself, I wouldn't be where I am. And that's why I like telling this story because sometimes we attribute our own success to ourselves or how good we are, but that's not necessarily true. There's a lot mm. of people that normally play a role. The guy, for example, that went to SAA sure. and left the number there. My, oh, the director that I was driving with, you know, and just having, you know, a talk, the instructor, you know, my helicopter instructor that he, he I mean, he had a choice by then because I was close to where there's a cutoff, you know, like, you know, when you, there's a cutoff where when you don't go solo, you get washed out. I was quite close. He had a choice. You know, the choice was, I'm going to let it go and, you know, just go. And rightfully so, because there were, you know, there, there are rules that are set. But he, di he, didn't, he didn't do that. And for me, yeah. I think, you know, that's quite important, even in the work that we do, you know, that courageous leadership of just maybe doing something different. Yeah, and I think that's an important point that you bring up, that, you know, we, we you know, on, on the back of this, we don't, you don't operate in this world on your own, and the, there's certain chance things that happen, but also from the other perspective where you are now in your career giving back and, and being an inspiration to others is that you don't always realize what a simple couple of words or a keep your chin up or I notice you or passing comments or thoughts that you inspire people. You sometimes don't remember the simple little thing you said five years ago and uh, you know, having a look through your webpage there's some great success stories there of people that are now flying in Europe doing their European commercial pilots, airline pilot license now. Based on the fact of potentially a, a phrase, a, a well done, or a, a see you, and isn't it incredible how you can touch people's lives and sometimes in the simplest of ways? Yep, it is incredible, and 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 I think that's you, you're right. It's always important that you know you have no idea what your presence can do. At that point, at that time, you might not realize the impact, but his decision and his words and what he did. Is my success today or the work that we're doing, it's his success as well. Because he started, or, you know, everyone that had played a role, the guy at Kome who said, you know, you can only pay for fuel, everyone. And the girls that I'm impacting, each one of them had play, paid a role in that. Because if that chain was broken at some point, there's no way I'd be sitting you know, I would be sitting, you know, where I am, uh, where I am today. And I think that is quite important that our generation, us, we mm. become those people as well. That make sure that we form somebody else's chain on their way to yeah. you know, success. So tell me, uh, you did it, so you had your career, was it about 10 years in the police? Uh, did you, did you carry on flying helicopters yep. after that? Do you still fly today? Well, I still fly <laughs> a little bit, but not, not a lot. <laughs> I did fly 10 years in the police and what I initially thought I would do, 
I didn't do it, like move immediately to fixed wing and go into airlines. Not because um, I didn't want to, because man, how can you leave helicopters? <laughs> there is no way. It's one of the most <laughs> incredible jobs that I've ever had and some incredible flying mm. that I've had the privilege. What a privilege. So I was based sure. in Durban and I did some incredible flying. You talk about, Mand you know, you know, the Dragonsberg, man. That place is scary. Even today, after 20 years in the aviation mm. industry, it's one place that I have so much respect for. And I always have respect for because the, the flying is challenging. It challenges you. Mm. The winds changes. And just the amount of learning that you go through, the amount of time you scare yourself and you come back and you're like, yeah, yeah that was quite... That was quite close, but it was. But one 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 thing that I liked about the job, which which also ties back to my upbringing, was it actually made a difference in people's lives. You know, being a, either you do a rescue in the mountain, or somebody get arrested, or you know. So it mm. it actually it was almost like I was meant to do that job because it tied everything you know, together for me, it was meaningful, it was useful, it was value, it was adding value, it was working yeah. with the community. So I really loved it. And it was, you know, the best 10 years of my life. Um, just like with anything, Alex, there are challenges, but the reason why I chose to speak about the positives, because they far exceed the challenges, um, you know, that I've had. I've had one or two people probably that, you know, were not as welcoming, but I had 98% of people that were as welcoming. So my mantra as well is I normally focus on the, on the 98%. Those 2% shame, bless them. That's, that's what I mm. always them. You know, it's, I know, you know, sometimes it, it takes time for people to adjust to things and ways of doing, you know, ways of doing things. You know, but amazingly, some of those two percent now, I actually drink coffee with them, which is quite amazing. Oh, that's and great. I always joke about. It. I'm like, you remember what you did, yeah. you know, and whatever. So it's it's yeah. So it was it was an exciting career. It it taught me quite a lot, and I'll forever be thankful to the police because not only they did they afford me that career as a helicopter pilot, but just being part of them, being part of the pioneers, really gave me a platform of which I can impact change, my voice can be heard a little bit more because when you get that platform, when you've got that voice, you're able to effect change. And if I didn't join the police and if I wasn't part of the police, if, if they mm. didn't give me that platform, I wouldn't have had that platform that I, you know, that I had today. So I'm for, you know, if I have to say an organization that I'll be forever grateful for, you know, that's, yeah, that's the subs. One of those things that uh, people talk about often, you know, is the first this, the first that. Now, we've got a mutual friend, Annabelle, who was the first black Air Force pilot and later flew Nelson Mandela, yeah. President Nelson Mandela around. <laughs> and uh, you have that yeah. uh, privileged title of being the first black helicopter pilot in the police. How do you feel about that when people mention that? So, you know, Alex, it happened 20 years ago. It's, I, I, it's part of my story, but it's not the whole story. And I actually don't prefer to focus on that it's 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 a, you know it's pioneering you know we broke grounds we set you know there's things that happened there we had to change a lot of you know we had to change a lot of things uh but sometimes i think it takes away from the identity and some of the things that we do as individuals because if you stick to that identity as the first black that's what you mm -hmm. will be known for but that's not the whole story 
that's just you know a little bit part of the story yeah and um so i choose not to focus on that on on just being sure. i acknowledge it and i'm grateful because that's that gave me a platform to effect on you know to effect the change that i want to that i want to see but it's quite important as well to start talking about the 10th person the 20 you know 20th person because sometimes you can you, you get caught up in that right like oh the first and yeah but i think for us for me it's quite important that we start looking at you know, the next generation where we don't really have to start yes. talking about, you know, the first black, but it's history. It's part of history. It's going to remain there. It's it's there. But we need to start talking about what then, you know, within the next generation on that one part. But on the, uh, that other part as well, you need to be, I think, as an individual, you need to really be um, cognizant that that might be your identity. And that's what you'll be known for. There's a whole lot of other things that I have done in my life. There's a whole lot of other things that I would want to be remembered, you know, remembered for. So it's very important that those two things are balanced. And people not only talk about that, but they also talk about the work that, um, you know, the work that I do, the work that I'm involved in, but also that since then, what had happened? Are there other women in there? You know, in the industry, because sometimes, you know, I know we've been chatting and I've been avoiding a lot of <laughs> media interviews <laughs> this August. And it's precisely because of that, because I think there's a whole lot of other women that could be given a platform and a voice as well. Because what happened to me was 20 years ago. You cannot still want to talk about me 20 years later. We need to talk about other women. And I have avoided probably about 10, 15 interviews in the last <laughs> in the uh, last okay. um yeah. in the last two weeks or, or something like that and deliberately so because there are other women and they need to start talking to them because then we we, we we i think we also um yeah putting this thing that there's also a few of us there's a lot of us now there's a lot of women helicopter pilots in south africa you know there's a whole lot of women and if we look at the statistics we in south africa women are actually ahead of even the sure. um the global average of about five percent you're looking at about 11 percent in south africa of a you know women pilot and so we have in a short space of time i'm not saying that that's enough it's not it, it will there's still a lot of work that need to be done but if you look at the strides that we've made in south africa even better than the nordic countries or any the nordic countries which are on the forefront of women empowerment we've really done well so i think maybe it's time to start having different conversations rather than the conversation about being the first but the conversation about what what do we do then with the, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I did have a laugh when you said that because in my time in the Air Force, just just around the time I was leaving, I had a bit of a smile because the South African Air Force, the Silver Falcons, our display team, had the first lady pilot. Hey, Brechvinikek was in the team before the Red Arrows yeah. had their first lady pilot. So as you say, mm -hmm. South Africa, in some respects, we are pioneering and it is a wonderful thing. But to, to turn sideways and back to the beginning of the conversation of the um, program, Girls Fly, uh, Girls Fly program in Africa, uh, you've obviously made a, a big impact uh, to, on a lot of people. Um, hundreds of thousands of people have been impacted by it. And you have, you've had some specific training courses. Tell me a little bit about uh, what you get up to there. Are you still actively involved in that? Um, and that must be a wonderful thing to expose people who would ordinarily not have had that, uh, like, like yourself as a child. You have, didn't see any pilots in your community but now you can expose those stories and people can see it and there's an opportunity tell me a bit more about the program 
So, um, so Girlfly program in Africa was born out of some of the challenges um, that I experienced earlier on. I call them challenges uh, because um, if they were not probably there, I would have known a little bit more about aviation. Some of them being a lack of information about the industry or having access to that information about um, the industry, knowing that I could become a pilot or being a viable career choice and also funding. So that was sort of the initial, um, so that was sort of um, the reasons behind, you know, sort, sort of the formation of Girlfly program in Africa. Initially, it started off as sort of a, um, like a mentoring uh, platform or session, but it wasn't formalized up until a few years ago. And initially we mainly focus on probably going to schools and just giving information and a little bit of mentoring. But at some point we saw that that is not having the tangible impact because some of the challenges are really at grassroots level. And we went back and we like, we need to catch them when they are young. So we then changed the program to focus on primary, high school, and um, you know, post school, but mainly primary and high school. So what we've got, we've got what we call a phase program approach. So okay. the first phase is mainly just you know outreach programs. We will go out, we'll tell them interesting um, stories about the aviation industry or the industry itself, and we also focus on the science, technology, engineering, and maths because we want them to also at a very grassroots level to start looking or taking those subjects very seriously. And, and then that's, that's more or less phase two. And in that phase, we'll go to as many schools as possible. And we, we normally impact more than probably 10,000 students a year. And from that phase, we'll go on to phase two. And we're like, okay, now that you know what the industry is all about, for the young people that are interested, we're going to streamline you. There's now this phase where we're going to now start introducing you more about the aviation and space industry, where we've got aviation and space camps. We've got um, more outreach programs, but that are more focused. We've got um, workshops that are more focused as well. And that will be mainly students in high school and after after that we've got a phase three now that we we've you know we've got you interested in the industry you love the industry what then because we understand that most of the students that we work with they really come from areas that are very poor areas or they've got similar back some of the similar backgrounds like our backgrounds meaning that they can't afford some of the um, fees that are required to qualify whether it's a drone pilot pilot or engineer and then the phase three covers that where we partner with multiple companies and they get scholarships through those companies or as an organization we give um we give out those scholarships and skills development programs as well now, Alex, this is the interesting part. You know, we called okay. Girls Fly Program Africa. Sounds very comprehensive. Yeah. However, yeah. However, sixty percent of our programs include young boys as well. I know normally you you don't see okay. them online, and you know all these things. And there's a reason why we do that. And we firmly believe that women empowerment doesn't necessarily mean men's exclusion. Or girls' empowerment doesn't mean boys' exclusion. So for us, it's quite important that when we run these programs, they are very, very inclusive, which means we take both girls and boys up with us. 
So most 60% of our program are mixed, especially primary school. We run programs for both of them. There are only three programs that are not mixed, which is the camp, the job shadowing, and some of the skills development, skills development uh, program. And through our research, we decided that some of the programs, we are going to designate them, you know, to give space for those young girls to, you know, be able to grow without the pressures, you know, outside, be able to interact with other females and, you know, just, you know, kind of mm. have a space where they can be, you know, they can be themselves. And but our scholarships sure. as well, it's mixed. Yeah. So they're not necessarily for, um, we've given instructor scholarships to both, you know, male and female. But we always say that people that we come across and we impact, we want them to come back as well to, you know, to continue giving back. So if you are a young man or male or whatever, you need to also be, you know, be, buy into the vision of supporting, you know, the girls in your environment or young women in your environment or wherever you go, you know, sure. both young women and men in those environments, yeah. Okay, well, it sounds quite comprehensive. And uh, the stats that I saw briefly, um, I don't know if it, uh, I've got the latest figures, more than 500 people have uh, have attended some version of camp or scholarship or program, and that's incredible. That's, uh, I mean, that must be yep. mind-blowing. Like, uh, it must make you sleep well at night knowing that you've impacted, that's essentially 500 families or in a better place because of the program. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, and it, it, it does. And so we didn't see a lot of, you know, a lot of results um, initially. But in the last two years, we've started seeing the results. I mean, more than 100,000 people, you know, young girls and boys have, have been impacted. And then more than 500 have um, attended our camps. And I mean, if I can give you that, it just goes even beyond, um, you know, just saying impact. Because we measure impact beyond just the numbers. We measure impact with, you know, the people that we've impacted. But what I want to do as well, I just want to take you back because, you know, sometimes um, when programs like ours, uh, you know, when people come across program like, like ours and they ask us why we exist, right? And some of the answers yeah. or the expected answers is we exist because, you know, there's not a lot of females or there's not a lot, lot of women in particular environment. But I, I just want to give you some of the statistics of why it makes sense to actually have programs like okay. this, not on the superficial level, but what it can potentially, you know, do to the country. Right. So if okay. you look at. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is some of the statistics. Right. If we close the gender gap in yeah. employment, right? This has got it has a an op it's an opportunity to actually address one of the triple challenges. So, what are some of the challenges that we face in this country? Poverty, inequality, and unemployment, right? So, if we reduce yeah. the gender gap in income and employment by just a mere ten percent, right? You could add additional economic growth of three point two percent drop unemployment by 6.5% and reduce poverty in low-income household by an estimated 2.9%. Now, so we're talking really big numbers. So we're not really there because mm. we want to increase the number of, um, you, know, you know, female pilots or we want to increase the number of, um, you know, engineers. By just impacting those sure. young people at a grassroots level, some of the results will exactly be that. 
increase those numbers. But what does it do on a macroeconomic yeah. level? And I think that for us is quite important, especially where the country is. So it's 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 not just about you know um, the you know the numbers. I buy the yeah, story. You, you I, wanted I, to say something. Yeah. yeah. So Rafiq, mm -hmm. I. I yeah, I buy the story on, on the fact that there's there's an impact down the line. But just tell me this golden thread through how the um, your your girl fly program, which includes male and females, how how does it play out that it improves the the unemployment? Just uh, just tie it all together okay. such that the, there's that sort of trifecta benefit. Benefit. So the people that wouldn't. So my. Oh, the research that we've done, we've seen that there are some areas that were uh, possibly not accessible initially to, you know, certain demographics. And when I say some, some certain sure. demographics, I'm talking about people in the rural areas. I'm going to give you an example one yeah. of one of the candidates, right? She, we, I, we met, I actually met one of that candidates. I landed at one of her schools when I was in the police in KZN. Now, oh, she wow. was in, that grade, must have been impressive. in grade 11. Oh, yeah. I used to, I actually used to do that. Land, like when we do some work <laughs> in a particular area and there's a school, we landed at the school. And then I'll speak to the young yeah, people. Amazing. And then we go. Because so I, so that young girl, we landed at her school. And that's how I came, you know, we sort of came in contact and we did some work with the school. Some of the learners, they attended one of the camps. So she yeah. decided she wanted to do aeronautical engineering because of you know the information that she got from you know from us through our interaction and through our some of our partner organizations she got a full scholarship to just do that and she finished her aeronautical engineering degree she's from a rural area in KZN where there is no engineer wow. she's never seen an engineer finished her aeronautical engineering degree at VITS, did a drone pilot license, and um, one of her theses, she looked at how, the, how to manufacture a, a low-cost drone for sustenance farming or some, something like that. It's, it's quite complicated. I don't even know how to, you know, like to actually okay. say what it is. But, you know, so what we've seen, and I'll explain to you how, how does that impact. Now, you've, you, you've taken this person, you've given, given them an education where, you know, a technical education, this, she, they've innovated whatever they've innovated. The interesting part is when they start looking at solving problems, they start contextualizing where they're coming from, which was quite interesting with the, with the thesis. Now, you're training people coming mm. from the areas that were probably previously you know, marginalized, and you're training them, giving yep. them, the, you know, these skills, they go back, and they're using those skills to, to start innovating, or they're coming up with solutions that are solving problems in those areas, which is what you want. Now, if you take somebody like who's yes. in the urban, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it's, you know, the people that are in the urban areas where obviously, yes, they get educated, but it's different when you take somebody that, you know, that from, mm. you know, that are from those rural areas, giving them those skills, they start understanding about innovation and they start thinking, how do I start then improving um, those areas in, you know, where I'm coming from. Yeah, how do I be useful? Some of the, how am I useful back in yeah, my area yeah, once become, again? Yes, in, in my area. When I, when I spoke to her like a couple of, I think months ago, she was telling me that one of the young girls from, a particular, from that particular area, she's actually doing second year aeronautical engineering adverts as well. Now she's a role model. I, mm -hmm. I no longer, people like us no longer have to go there. 
to for the for the young people yes. to see us role models. We've created a local role model. People that that yes. grew up somebody that grew up in this in that area that they can see relate to and that her story resonate with them as well now that triple mm. impact is starting is no longer about numbers it's about people now you start getting those kids interested in those in these technical fields i mean you've seen the shortage as well in those technical fields you start getting those young people in those rural areas getting, getting in those technical fields starting to go back and starting to innovate in those areas and what does innovation mean? It can mean, you know, being entrepreneurial, starting businesses. Um, I've got a couple of young people that have attended our drone program, and we do introduce them to innovation, human-centric innovation, design thinking. We introduce them to entrepreneurship, and they're looking at ways how can they use that technology, you know, in those places. And if you look at Alex, and I know I'm deviating a little bit, technology, we, unfortunately, no, no, we good. have to leapfrog, right? We're not going to wait for yep. somebody to build um, uh, roads and whatever in those, because we're going to wait for a long time. But you've got this technology, for example, I don't know if you know the Black Swan that can carry cargo and land. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a drone, just as an example, that can carry, I think, 800 kilos. No, of I'm not cargo, familiar. Fly 2,000 kilometers. Wow. Uh, fly 2,000 kilometers. And when you think about those, innovations that are coming out and you think about the infrastructure in those rural areas then you start looking at how do you then start making sure that this technology goes there in those rural areas and they start making use of it leapfrogging instead of saying no we're going to wait for a road to be built we're going to wait for some towers yes let's take those innovation to those rural areas and this is what we're actually trying to do as a foundation so it's not about the numbers it's about that impact where not only are we starting to motivate these young people to look at entrepreneurship, innovation, whether it's in the aviation or space, technology, or any other STEM-related, you know, STEM but starting to inspire those young people to come out and really be, you know, do well and be better. And that I think for me, that's how we're going to start looking and really impacting on the, you know, the issue of, um, you know, unemployment those young people starting businesses, mm, those young mm. people choosing careers that are scarce, that are actually, you know, that are actually needed in this country, you know, um, as well. And then the issue of poverty. So once you impact that young girl, like uh, she's from the rural areas, you're starting to, you're breaking the cycle yep. of poverty. I look at my family, the generation okay. before my mom, poor, you know, same thing. And then the second thing, inequality, which is one of the biggest thing, right? We're trying to uh, close, close that gap. But by just doing those programs, um, running those programs, automatically, they close the gender gap as well. Because those mm, young mm. women, sure, you know, it, it's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of a ripple effect of, you know, impacting on the it is definitely. What we try, yeah, what we're trying to do, yeah. That's a good example, and I, and I like how you know you, you bring back you've impacted somebody several years ago. That person goes on to do something good, and that person becomes the role model. And then you know the role model has two or three spin-offs, and then each spin-off has more. So you're bringing it back in. But if I was to sum up uh, the, the sort of the theme of the conversation, being useful and having the courage to to go for things despite not having all the answers or all the means or, or you know the necessary skills at the time when you go for it. It's been a wonderful chat. I really have enjoyed this time with you, Rafiwe. 
And I know that you're probably busy with lots of other things. You seem like someone who's a go-getter and certainly it's very easy to get to know and like you and spend time with you. So if somebody wants to specifically reach out and, and find out more about what you're up to and how they can help and get involved and maybe somebody listening now has a friend, a neighbor, a nephew, a daughter or whoever it is that uh, would like to know more, what's the best place for people to reach you? The best place will be to email us on info at gfpafoundation.org. So info at gfpafoundation.org. Um, or follow us okay. online, our handle, all the social media platform at GFPA um, Foundation. That's great. And I, 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 I expect that you get a lot of requests to come and uh, talk at the school. Is that something that you still do? Do you still go around to schools and, and give talks? I actually do more of that than <laughs> interviews on TV. <laughs> That's what I, I do. But okay. if I can't, then I send some of the, um, you know, my team uh, to to do okay. that. But if I can, yeah, I, I, I personally like to do that. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, look, this has been fun, and I hope we do get a chance to have a cup of coffee or fly in the helicopter get together one day. I look forward to that opportunity. Good luck with your distilling what it is to be your, your, your topic for your PhD. Uh, this is no small task that you set yourself, and uh, I'm sure that you'll mm -hmm. tackle it with aplomb like you have all other the challenges in your career thus far. No, thanks. Uh, thanks. I'm looking forward to the coffee and, um, yeah, definitely the PhD. I'll keep you updated once I've, um, you know, I'm done with, uh, you know, the choice of the topic. And, yeah, maybe we'll have another <laughs> chat. <laughs> hey, real quick, it's Alex once again. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. Also, remember to subscribe and share this content with others. All these tips and tricks help us to create a better show. Better reviews, better ratings help us get better promotion and helps us get better guests. So thank you.